Over 20% of Australians live with a disability. That's one in five people. Welcome to episode five of season three of Delving Into Dance. In this episode, we hear from Joshua Pether, who through his work challenges notions of disability and other preconceptions around what is normal. I spoke to Joshua after his successful season of Monster at the Yerenboy Festival, where he shared the same program as Gareth Chambers, also interviewed as part of this season. Joshua is an articulate and intelligent individual that divides his time between working as a pharmacist and working on dance projects. I started by asking about his childhood in the regional mining town of Mount Isa. Basically, we'd be up at about six or five, actually five in the morning from memory, and we'd get into town just before school started, which was around about 8.30. Um, and, and then um, we'd, we'd go home that following day, so Mum would pick us up at around about, I think it was 3 or 2.30 or 3 o'clock when school finished most days. But, um, and then we'd go home, and we wouldn't get home until about 5 or just before you know, dusk, basically. So Mount Isa itself is a pretty rough kind of mining town. It was back in the day, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I, I haven't been there since then, but I'd imagine nothing. Uh, I'd say a few things have changed. Um, you know, eventually progress gets to anywhere, so... So how did you get to starting dance? Because you're, what, six? Um, yeah, I was six when I first started dance, and to be honest, I don't remember exactly uh, I, I actually do remember exactly what happened I just don't know why I decided to dance um, I actually think from memory it was mum that put me into dance school I never actually actually I don't think I actually want, I can't remember to be honest. I don't know if I actually asked or requested to go but I just happened to do a dance in front of the um, in front of mum I think it was Nana and Papa at the time I think that was all three of them. And then then mum had this idea that I should go to dance school. And so she contacted the, I suppose, the the only ballet, well, actually the two ballet schools, um, but she contacted the one that was closest to us at the time. And I went there, and then that lady had um, kept on changing timetables and because it was quite hard for us to sort of come in and out um, mum wanted to put me in a more um, stable situation, so I went to the other dance school, which is actually not very far from where I lived at the time as well. And, yeah, I pretty much stayed there until about early high school when it became just a bit too much. And, yeah, it became a bit much to continue dancing, especially being the only, well, the only boy at the time. There was another guy, actually, who did it. But of course, he was sort of in the track and field um, environment. It was probably more accepted that he was able to do it than myself. So um, yeah, so I stayed as long as I could before anything, you know, before it became a bit too much for me. Um, but yeah, it became really serious. I remember one time, it, I think it was about in year six or seven, I was doing like private lessons as well as the usual classes, so like two times a week that we went. And, yeah, it was, um, it became like a, yeah, a vocation in many ways. Like, it was sort of like what I wanted to do. 
Um, what about was it that captivated you? Um, I think it was possibly that idea of imagination that probably drew me to it. Imagination, creativity. Because I was, before I was became a dancer, I was actually a visual artist as well. Well, drawing and painting, don't know if you call it a visual artist, but that's what I did. Um, so that was also something I did when I was um, growing up, as well as dance. I used to draw a lot. So I quite liked that idea of creativity and imagination. But in many ways, I think the thing that made me want to go forward was um, just a there was an examiner that came and she happened to say some quite very glowing remarks about myself and, you know, wrote a letter to my father at the time, you know, encouraging me to continue because Dad at the time was also not very keen on me doing it as well. Um, so I think, in, yeah, I think in many ways it was a combination of, like, you know, the imagination, creativity, but also this thing about someone else sort of thinking it was a worthwhile thing as well, and it's not quite important. Um, Does it make a difference to your dad? Um, it, we, I honestly can't remember. <laughs> it's so long. Um, yeah. It's, it sort of, I think it did because we ended up having to make a compromise about something, and I don't think we actually compromised any, at, any <laughs> at any stage. I think the compromise was I could still dance but then I couldn't go to school in Mount Isa. But I went to school in Mount Isa anyway. So there was really not a compromise. So. It's funny because like in my research, it's yeah. all the... There are, out of 18 professional yeah. male dancers, three of them whose... There's three of them whose fathers were the ones that had a problem with them dancing. And for different yeah. reasons, but yeah. it, was, it was the dads that... Yeah, no, I think, issue with a, it. I think it's a, a male thing at the time, and it's, I don't know if it is nowadays, um, but back then it was very much just, you know, a masculine male thing, um, especially, you know, that boys didn't do that sort of thing. And also, I suppose, um, he, he probably never really encountered anyone like me, his, one of his um, sons from a previous marriage. Um, well, sorry, it's probably his current marriage, right? Um, is actually attending the Australian Ballet School. Yeah, um, wow. There, but, you know, it's a, they always call it their um, vacation schools and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, it's definitely changed. And I think it's, you know, because obviously he's, you know, realised what happened with me, so he probably doesn't want to go down that same path as well. Um, so, maybe yeah. he should have been a dancer himself. He seems to be breeding them. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I don't know. Most possibly. Yeah, I've had seen him dance. You know, I think. Yeah, yeah. so interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so, why, like, why was it that you moved away from dance if it felt so right? Um, it was just really hard. Um, it was a really hard time. There was no sort of. Um, there was really no validation for the art form <clears throat> in terms of a, a boy doing it. Like, there was no um, Say Thinking Dance on TV. Um, the only thing that sort of had any sort of significance at the time was Daddy Dancing. 
So that was around. But, I mean, that was not really... Didn't take off in Mount Isa as it took off over the rest of the country, I'd say. Um, and, yeah... Uh, and funnily enough, that was one of the, that was the movie that got that other guy into dancing as well. If I remember correctly, him seeing Dirty Dancing. Um, so we had a very like um, limited um, amount of stimulus and sort of things that would change the the shift in people's perceptions about boys dancing. Yeah. Um, there wasn't a lot around, and I think as you know. I actually noticed, because I worked at a dance school at the time when I did start going back to dance, um, or when Safe Thinking Dance came back on TV, or when it came on TV, all the boys that came in to do dance class outnumbered the girls, and it was like, I've never seen anything like that before. <laughs> like, I mean, you know, it was very unusual um, for boys to dance. When, when I went back, there was maybe about five or six of us in the class, but then when the, the you know, that show came on TV, there was sort of like a, you know, some sort of um, renewal interest in, you know, doing it as an, you know, an exercise, if anything, rather than actual, possibly a career. But then eventually there was some, and I'm still keeping in touch with them, that eventually, you know, started out wanting to do it as like an exercise, and then they eventually landed up as a career. So... Yeah, I think in many ways that show was really instrumental in helping, I think, boys to find their voice. Um, but, I mean, I was out of it for so long, so I don't really know prior to what was going on because I yeah. sort of had left it completely. I'm interested because yeah. you did leave it to go down, like, a science <laughs> maths kind of route. Yeah, I know. And I was never and good at that at all. <laughs> in, uh, when I interviewed um, Gideon Obazanic for mm. season one, he also nearly went down a science mm. route, mm. and that kind of appears in a lot of his work. Mm. Um, and Sue Healy, who I interviewed for season two, talks about science mm. as being a potential path. Mm. And I'm really interested, there seems to be a lot of people working in dance that have this strong understanding and crossover between science and mathematics. Yeah. Um, I'd say I'm probably not really one of those as such. It sort of just... I honestly, to this day, cannot tell you why I decided that I wanted to be a pharmacist. It is one of those anomalies in my life that I look at and think, where did that come from? And I've got no idea. Like, I just remember one day the the question was asked in high school, I think it was, what do you want to be? And for some reason this word pharmacist came into mind and it was like, I think I knew what it was, at least I knew that. Um, but actually when I went to university there was a few people that actually didn't even know what that was when they were doing pharmacy so I mean uh, yeah so that was interesting they sort of just did it because it was you know because they got into it because it's like one of those high IP subjects which was yeah. I think it's changed that wording's changed now as well but at the time if you got like a certain IP you then got into pharmacy so a lot of people just did it because of the prestige so it was similar to medicine that's great so people yeah. handing out my script yeah. potentially, potentially didn't know what they were doing not knowing what they were no, doing they thought <coughs> and they were, you know they thought oh and their mum and dad said it was a really good job so let's do it you know and then eventually you know they learn what it is and stick to it as far as because what the time it was probably the wage if anything 
Well, you've been stuck at it. Well, I think it's just a, it's just a odd. Well, for me, it's just a casual job. Um, I'm able to do it. It's given me a stable enough income to do it. And um, yeah, like I think um, one of the things I've noticed over the last few years is possibly like, especially when I did the critical path residency last year, how that has informed my practice quite a lot in terms of, I think, viewing the body, um, viewing the body through this sort of um, scientific manner rather than maybe through the, like, the um, spiritual or the... the, Sort of like viewing it through this sort of thing as like a, a vehicle for the spirit to move through. Um, in many aspects, I do still view it like that, but I also have this interest in the in sort of like how the anatomy works, and especially having the operation that I did when I was younger, I'm more interested in now in how that actually how the body functions when it has gone through some sort of traumatic experience, or not traumatic experience as such, but possibly has like a different function to everybody else. Can we talk about that operation because that's yeah certainly shapes your approach to dance and your thinking around Yeah, dance. well, I mean, the operation was um, I had was diagnosed with scoliosis and this happened literally about a year after I'd stopped dancing. And because I wasn't dancing, it was sort of mis- um, it wasn't sort of um, picked up until later in life when I happened, when well, actually it was, my nana was doing a massage course and so we volunteered to do massage and she noticed that my spine was quite unusually shaped and she said, oh, maybe you should take him to the doctor and so mum took him to the doctor and ended up having a diagnosis of scoliosis and they said, oh, okay, well then um, they sent a specialist from Townsville at the time because there was really no one at and Mount Isa that could really deal with it so we had to wait for them to come down which was, I think, about a month or two months after the initial diagnosis. And he said initially that I need a brace and I had to go to Townsville to get it fitted. And I, I don't know, something about intuition, which I often follow to this day, I sort of thought in the back of my mind, I think it's a bit more severe than that. And so when, I, when we got to Townsville and we were told, like, you know, I'd have to have an operation, it didn't really... I wasn't surprised. I know Mum was very, very surprised, um, possibly because it was like... Um, quite a, at the time, I don't think it was like a very common operation, um, and also I suppose the thought of being paralysed sort of came to mind. I think a few times, um, but yeah, I, I wasn't that surprised um, in, to begin with, and um, so I think it was in space of about a month or two months after that, I ended up having an operation in Brisbane. And that's when I started school in Sunshine Coast. And pretty much, like, I think from that time on, I sort of thought, oh, okay, there's really no point in ever, you know, going back to dance. And because I'd left it for such a long time and I sort of was immersed in the scientific mathematics world that I sort of trained my brain to think more that way than anything else. Um, so it was like a rod that was put in yeah. to your spine to, yeah. to so straighten they, it? They put rods in and then they drill in screws. So it's sort of like um, 
It's about railway tracks. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the way you probably look at it. Um, and there is a possibility that possibly, you know, the spinal cord might become damaged. I think there's like a 30% chance of that happening. So it's quite high in terms of like, you know, operations go of paralysis occurring. Um, but thankfully nothing untoward happened. I never, and I didn't need to get the operation again, which is another thing that happens. Like sometimes the screws come loose and then they have to get it operated again. And it's over time the bone's grown over it. And I've had, I had an x-ray, I think it was about um, actually last year, and um, I noticed that the spine has actually curved <laughs> and the rods have curved with the spine. Yeah, wow. Well. Yeah, so I think with the movement it starts to then become its own sort of organic creature that moves, yeah. So, but I mean... So did it limit, does it limit your movement in terms of... Oh, it limits, so you can't bend backwards, so you limit that. And also you find it sometimes hard to fully stretch because um, it puts a lot of um, sort of untoward pressure on you, on your um, glutes. So you have a lot of, uh, I have a lot of very tight glutes, I think, from that problem. And also when I was growing up, um, I was really quite flexible and almost to the point of contortionist flexible. So I think that's another thing that I found, you know, I was, that was sort of my skill in many ways, my show-off thing for everybody else. And then that sort of stopped everybody from becoming, it sort of stopped the boys in many ways from like overly being quite sort of nasty if they knew, if they saw that I could do that because then it's sort of like obviously they can't do that so then it was something I could do that they couldn't do and then I could sort of show off that way but at the same time also prevent any sort of other major bullying from happening as well because then they sort of had like oh okay that's pretty cool you know but did then, that work for you? for a while for a while it became you know like just you'd show it off to people because they go hey you know I've heard that you can do the splits and you just do the splits or, you know I heard you can do that, you can just do that. Because it became like this thing of like, well, if you didn't do it, what were they going to do? So, yeah, you sort of just, you know, that was sort of your um, pass, I suppose, through school <laughs> that you could, you know, show off and then you you got, you know, you were able to go along your merry way without being bullied or anything. Um, but, I mean, sometimes, you know, obviously it didn't work all the time and there were times when it was really tough. Well, it was actually very tough in the school. Um, I think, um, yeah, there was some really traumatic experiences, um, possibly a bit too, a bit too many to really list. Um, but I think in many ways that sort of has shaped how I am today and um, how I sort of view the world now, which is quite different to a lot of other people. How do you think, like, that experience at school, mm-hmm. etc., has changed the way you see the world? Um, I have to think about this quite intimately and really recall a lot of, you know, past information. Because as far as I can remember, I've always felt this way. Um, so to actually have any sort of other 
feeling or um, resonance with anything else is really hard because it's it's almost like going back to the womb <laughs> in many ways. Um, but I remember the first time I'd sort of tried to do anything to myself when I was eight years of age. So I'd say around about that time is probably when my shift in who I was and how I thought about myself had sort of changed. Prior to that, I don't remember too much. Um, although I was always, I've always been told I've always been a very special child by both parents. So I don't know what that means in particular. Um, I think it, I think it just means like I was different to a lot of them. I never used to like um, I didn't use like little like I suppose boys as opposed to boys. Um, I didn't used to like play in the dirt. Didn't used to like you know get dirty. Hated dirt actually. Very um, <coughs> fastidious about being clean. Yeah, so much so that I used to go in people's houses. I didn't used to sweep the dirt into a corner while mum was talking to them and then when she'd finished there was a pile of dirt in the corner that I had apparently swept and organised. And so I think probably, you know, that sort of way of being may have been an easier target for bullies because um, I didn't used to do the boy thing and such. And I think, yeah, and I remember like... Um, when I first did dance class, I was really excited to tell everybody, you know, like I did this amazing class. It was called ballet, you know, she come do it. And it was in year one. And I think by then it hadn't really, we, we all, you know, children don't usually start to, you know, start to bully each other at that age, generally. Um, but... I remember actually saying it to the class and then there was like a quite you know, silent reaction afterwards. And here I was thinking, oh, you know, it's going to be so exciting and it was quite the opposite. And I think after that, you know, things obviously just changed, like people knew on dance and say so that was the thing that girls did and I think teachers at the time weren't any help at all. They didn't really say a lot or stand up a lot to that. Um, so, yeah, I pretty much was on my own. Um, so I think in many ways that thing of being one against ten to ten whole school in many ways um, starts to really affect the way that you view the world and the way that you are as a person. Mm. And I think that's probably where the shift or the break in personality occurred. And... I think I'd started to dissociate a lot, quite a lot, um, mainly from all the traumatic things that happened at the school. So you have to think, I have to think a lot about what actually happened. You have to think about if it actually did happen or not, um, mainly because in many ways it's like a dream. There's some instances where I remember I was, I think, forced into the girls' toilet and peed on or something like I'm not sure if that happened or not. Um, and then there's other instances where things happen and you just don't know if they happen. Because I think in many ways the mind 
makes up some sort of um, way to cope with that, so they dissociate a lot. And so I'd sort of gone through life with this sort of disorder, but I suppose way of living. Um, and it just wasn't until I think, geez, I think I was in university and I was seeing a psychiatrist at the time. And I just wanted to know what this was. But I just said, well, what is this? Like, you know, why is the way I feel the way I feel? Um, because I'd gone through like two lots of medication that hadn't worked and weren't working. And then she said, oh, no, this is, it's called dissociative personality disorder. And she said, it's basically, you can sit here and talk about the traumatic life, events in your life, like you're describing this death to me. No emotion in your voice, very pragmatic, logical. And... You know, she gave me an ultimatum, basically. She said, oh, you know, like, we can really, you know, you can keep continuing seeing me and Medicare can keep paying for it or you can leave if you wish. And so <laughs> I think in many ways, I, I, when I look back at it now, I don't think she was doing a job at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think that just gave me the sense, oh, okay, cool. At least I know what it is. I probably didn't know a lot about it. I'd read, I think at the time I was reading a lot about um, madness and um, suicide and all that sort of stuff, like um, really interesting like um, texts and references, just to understand what was going on. And, yeah, I thought, well, since I've got the information, I you know, sort of know what it is, um, without probably actually knowing exactly what it was, to be honest. And I decided to, yeah, leave. Because in reality, any of the medication I was going to take wasn't going to help at all. Yeah. Because it's like one of those, it's one of the few in mental illnesses that actually doesn't have a treatment. Um, bipolar is one of them as well, apparently. Well, it's very hard to treat it. Um, and there were, I remember there was a, there was an interview with a woman who was on Oprah. I can't remember her name. I think it was Trudy. Um, way back in like mid nineties. And she was probably the first. It's probably been many before, but I think probably the more sort of, I suppose, more well-known person at the time that had it. Um, and obviously I didn't go through what she went through. It was quite traumatic. Like apparently she was thrown in a well and there was um, her mother and father through snakes down there. Oh, God, that would be terrifying. Um, yeah, so while that was happening, she dissociated and she created another personality. But there's different sort of spectrums to it. Um, a lot of people seem to think that we shift dramatically. It's actually not. It's very subtle. And if anything, there's a very dominant personality that takes hold yeah. and it sort of is one that drives you through life. So I think in many ways when you talk to me, it's probably 90% of the time for the dominant personality. And occasionally the temp sense slips through, but you may not know, or you begin to think, oh, what's this, uh, what's, this is something different. It's a, it's a shift where people start to feel uncomfortable, uh, thinking, oh, okay, what's going on, like, you know. Okay. That, and you sort of read it in people a lot. Um, so, yeah, I think, like, if, now that I understand it a bit more, I can actually know 
pinpoint things in my life, go, oh, okay, this is due, or this is the reason why this happened. And so does that inform your work as well? I think like it informs my process. <laughs> I think um, I'd probably, and I think this has had, I've had the experience where I'm probably very difficult to work with. Um, and I often wondered why that was, because I thought in many ways it was actually quite easygoing, but apparently I'm quite hard to work with. Um, so I think, yeah, and I think it's also that thing about not having that um, affinity or the, the, the communication skills that you have, that other people have with each other. Um, I often don't really go out of my way to really communicate a lot. I'm very solitary. Um, and for many, many years, I think I've only just started to not do this so much. I used to always listen to music as a way of just like making sure I wasn't able to communicate with So people have got headphones on and think, oh, okay, why don't disturb that person? I still do it, but I, I don't need to do it all the time. Like, I think back in the day, it was like literally every time I went out, I need to get my headphones, get, get my Walkman or, you know, the years progressed, iPod and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So I was always with that and also had to, I, and still too to this day had to carry a bag. Can't go by without something. It's like a security thing. It's like the thing that sort of keeps you, I don't know, it's, odd to, it's a strange thing to describe. If people, people know what I'm talking about, they'll understand it. People that don't probably won't understand, but... It is like a security thing that you need to carry something or you need to keep something with you. Um, it's very rare for me to go out without anything, but I can't just go out with my wallet or something. I don't need something with me. So in regards to movement mm. and moving and dancing, mm. you came back mm. to dance a fair bit later, yeah. like after stopping as a yeah. teenager. Yeah. Um, and then starting back up with rods in your spine, yeah. limiting <laughs> your ability to move in you, kind yeah. of some normative <laughs> ways. Why, how did you find yourself back in dance? I, I was doing like five or six days a week of being a pharmacist, I think. And I thought, oh, there must be a better life than this. I really can't, I really don't want to do this anymore. Like, I don't want to be working in a job that I knew wasn't really what I wanted to do in the first place. And I just thought, oh, look, I'll give it a go. Like, you know, what's going to happen? Like, I mean, I think also around that time there was that, that program I talked about before, Say Thinking Dance, was on TV. But I never watched it. And I made a, made a real, like, obvious decision not to watch it because I thought if I did watch it and when I did watch anything like that or read anything or you know looked at anything that reminded me of dance I got really depressed so I just decided not to have that in my life anymore and so I think you know eventually the call for dance is so strong and I think a lot of people can agree with this that eventually you do go back to it um, and at first I thought oh look I'll just do it as a you know, one day a week thing, which is what I said to my boss. Look, I want to go back and do exercise. That's the word I put it. And you know, she was um, because I think I'd say that I had the 
uh, distinction of being the person that would do the night shifts, it was easy for me to get sort of leeway with that. Because if I didn't do it, then no one else would do it. So I was a bit, I was had a bit more um, clout and that sort of thing. And so I said, look, I'll go back one day a week. And then eventually it turned into two days a week, three days a week, four days a week, until it became like I actually only worked Saturday, Sunday and Friday night. So, um, yeah, I think it was eventually I just got in, involved into it and just, you know, it absorbed me completely. I literally completely. Um, I remember, like, just going home and, like, thinking, oh, my gosh, I've found something I want to do. But then there was this thing with the issue of rods in the spine. I never actually told anyone until I think it was a month after doing my first ballet class, actually. I remember going up to the teacher and saying, look, I need to tell you something. She said, oh, what is it? I said, um, I've got rods in my spine. I said, oh, okay. But she didn't seem that concerned. Um, but then they're not concerned, but then you definitely feel like there's something that you're not doing right as you continue on. And, and you know, I think at the time <clears throat> a lot of the language around dance was how to do it properly rather than, what, you know, what that what dance is as a movement form and how that you express that through your body and not through other people's bodies. What is it about dance that kind of... There's this general assumption that it's for able-bodied, young, fit people. Because it's always been that way many, many years. I mean, I think prior to probably dance being as... uh, I suppose the only way I can think of it is, like I suppose, the ballet... Um, narrative has permeated into like dance for everybody um, and I suppose that's you know where you, where you first start generally you do ballet class I mean it's very rare I think for kids to start a contemporary class or but even then the contemporary classes have that ballet narrative through them anyway um, and so you yeah you you're brought up with this sort of idea of like line, linear um, perfection um, and also artistry is another thing that's often quite um, prominent um, so yeah I think um, yeah I think a lot of it's had to do with ballet I mean from, from my own research when I did my own exegesis back in 2012 on the place of the disabled dancer oh, sorry the Dance with disability in the contemporary dance world. Um, my thing kept coming back to the ballet and how um, ballet is quite a dominant force in a lot of dance narratives um, and seems to have hijacked a lot of different sort of, you know, um, genres, um, particularly with aesthetic and things like that. Aesthetic seems to be quite important a lot for dance um, and the aesthetic of the able bodied seems to be the way that things are yeah. and should be. Um, In regards to disclosure, mm-hmm. would it change the way people would assume what you can and can't do? Oh, absolutely. 
Absolutely. Um, some people it didn't, and there was very far, very you know, few and far between of those people. Um, but yeah, no, it's all. It was always like, oh, okay, you do the best that you can do, like without actually, you know, assist, you know, trying to offer an alternative. It was sort of like, oh, you just do your best, like. You know, when we do this, you just do something, you know, work it out or something like that, you know. Um, and I think because I think now we're becoming a bit more uh, aware of difference in the studio. Um, before that, I think it was still very like, oh, okay, well, just do your best. Like, you know, you, you'll, you'll figure it out somehow. And I think, you know, I did at the end. But, yeah, it was very like you, you get like, um, sort of like, in many ways, I felt that you were sort of um, one person. Actually, I remember they before they knew they actually treated me as like an equal to them. And then when I told them, they, I started to become almost like this lesser person, almost like I needed assistance in many ways, or like I was um, ten years of age. That's another thing you often get. You're ten years, but you know you, 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 you're not, you're not intellectually equipped. Put it that way. Um, that there's something wrong there as well, as well as having you know rods in your spine. You also don't know how to comprehend properly, like you know, twenty nine or thirty year old that you are. So somehow you're like fifteen or sixteen. Well, you know, so that was sometimes the reaction I got. And a pharmacist. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> Somehow throughout my life I've managed to achieve all these things and yet, you know, somehow they all think I'm going to get run over by the car when I walk down the street. Like, <laughs> you know, I need that special assistance somewhere. Um, so, yeah. Um, what role does, like, because mm. you're a bit of an activist in, mm. you know, having conversations mm. about challenging these assumptions and mm. ways in which different types of bodies... Mm and people can be involved in dance. Mm. What role does dance and, I guess, art more broadly play in making a society more inclusive? I think it gives people the opportunity to see something different and to see that difference in an authentic capacity. Um, A lot of the time... And I see this a lot. A lot of contemporary dance um, seems to borrow a lot from the the body of the disabled, um, often making grotesque forms, shapes, even um, ways of um, being on stage, um, especially the more sort of um, companies that sort of start to like have this groundbreaking make groundbreaking work. So I often look at that and say, okay, well, someone with um, that sort of, you know, lived experience would be able to express that more so than someone who's trying to learn it. Because in many ways you're just having to learn something that you don't actually know or feel or understand how that is. Um, and you're given direction a lot of the time that's sort of quite um, not even in relation to a particular sort of um, way of moving that's supposed to express this manner that you're supposed to move. Um, 
So I think people with that lived experience of actually knowing how it is that you move and you speak or hear or see things um, allows society then to see it as just another fact of life and it allows that more open conversation to happen where we can start to start to include more people into the dance narrative. And, yeah, I think, you know, art is... There's an aesthetic towards art, but if we try to change the aesthetic in art, it's easier to change that than it is to change someone's body, for instance. So it's easier to change an aesthetic rather than a physical form. So with having different bodies on stage, you then start to change the aesthetic, and then that starts to change people's perceptions. And also gives them, gives a real like validation to that person on stage as well because they're the one telling the story and not someone else that's supposedly trying to tell their story. Yeah. Yeah. Can we talk about your last work, Monster? Yeah. What was it that you wanted to say in that work? I just had an interesting conversation with someone about 10 minutes, 20 minutes ago about this. Um, in many ways, I didn't really know at first um, because it was given to me as, as choreographed on me as a solo. And then the next development was a performance art piece where the meaning wasn't really necessarily relevant. I often think of this work back when I did make it and think, what was it about? And what is, why did I think it should be titled Monster, for instance? And initially it was all about, like, you know, literally a monster. But then I thought, okay, there's actually something a bit more deep than this. And I thought, well, okay, often, I've often felt throughout my life that I'm a monster of some description or I'm sinful, mainly because I went to, like, um, a Catholic school and also later in life went to a Pentecostal Christian school. So I've always had that veil of religious thing and this thing that's sort of on top of me judging me as well as other judgments as well. So I had to... This time when I did do it, I brought in a dramaturg and they helped me to understand the meaning behind what I was trying to put on stage. And that became really clear for me in terms of like what I was trying to say. And also, each step of the way, what I was trying to say, not just like overall, the overall picture, but what each movement meant, why that, what it meant. And in many ways, it was very abstract, which I think is fine. Like I don't think everything needs to have a meaning. I think meaning can be very it can mean anything it's like it doesn't I don't think it necessarily needs to have like a specific type of meaning for it to make a statement as having being a worth, worthwhile piece of art but what I wanted to say is really and what I wanted to give an audience was really a visceral experience in terms of the way that I feel so for me, it was a personal exorcism on stage where I went for a trance state to begin with and ended in the trance state. But through that, 
it became like a contemporary ritual where I used contemporary objects to perform this ritual. So there was a table, there was a tablecloth, there was a horse's mask, and there was bubble wrap, and then there was various other things as well. So all throughout this process, it sort of, um, the way that the work evolved was became sort of like a ritual. And as I actually think more about it, it also became sort of like this child's game as well, where I'd wear a horse's mask, I'd act like a horse, I'd also put a cape around me. So it's all these sort of things I've, I used to do as a kid, really, as, I suppose, you know, when you're playing and also that time when you start to dissociate as well in that young age, how you then start to take on these different characters as well. So for me, it was all about giving that audience a real visceral experience to the reality of my existence, um, the way that I see the world, and the way that, you know... And also giving um, validation to that real dark aspect of human existence, that, you know, there's, n- there's never a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, a lot of people think there is, but there's not. <laughs> You know, I'm not saying there isn't, but, I mean, in some people there isn't. But, you know, we're not going to find someone. We're not going to end up with amazing jobs. We're not going to end up with, you know, you can have them, all the money in the world, but there's always going to be the darkness. So I think in many ways that then allows people to understand, I think, mental illness, and these illnesses that aren't necessarily treatable, a bit better than, say, the ones that everyone likes to go, oh, okay, there is light at the end of the tunnel. You know, and then that then allows an audience to then relate. I think my work doesn't allow you to relate, but allows you to then take in what you want and take what you don't want. One of the conversations I had with someone the night of the closing of the festival was that they had to actually dissociate from watching it. And then they then had to rationalise what they were seeing. And I said, well, that's the point. That's the point. That's what I have to do in many ways, you know. What I had to do, not, maybe it's not me anymore, but, I mean, that's what I had to do. You know, you, had to, you, you, you can't do anything much about it. So in many ways you have to dissociate yourself from the, the trauma that you're experiencing or the abuse. And then you need to go, okay, well, this is why it's happening or, you know, they're picking up that, putting that, you know. It then becomes a sort of like very pragmatic narrative that you you keep telling yourself that it's happening. So I think in many ways it achieved its goal. It did sort of polarise a lot of people. But at the same time, a lot of people found a lot of, um, you know, um, came back with some really positive feedback as well. So, yeah, I think overall it achieved its aim for me. And um, I think as I look at more work that I'd like to do, it sort of has that sort of, um, I suppose, aspect of something I'm really interested in following, yeah. that dark, dark aspect, which I think I know a lot of people... Uh, some people do, but I don't know a lot of them. Um, but I think in terms of a dance narrative, it's... No, I, I can't think of anyone that really does something so dark probably naive in that sense but um, 
yeah, I think it, it just gives gives a, a validity to those people that do live in that constant darkness. Yeah. You know, there, is, there really is no light at the end of the tunnel. And in many ways, that's fine. <laughs> you know, that's fine. You know, I think in this day and age where there's so much diversity, you know, that should, that should sort of be cool. Yeah. Great. <laughs> you know, but I don't know. I think people just find it hard sometimes to really deal with these really difficult issues. Um, to this day. Because um, I think in many ways everything needs to be a celebration. Uh, picked up by every venue or, you know, every person wants to see it. Um, it's going to be really select and very few. And, I mean, I suppose within the people who want, want to work with me as well would be very small. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, in many ways I'm sort of used to that. You know, my existence hasn't been one where I'm sort of the life of the party. Um, I usually do keep to myself a lot, um, read heaps. Um, what is it through dance then, through movement, which is mm. in many respects so exposing <laughs> as opposed to that yeah, keeping yeah. to yourself moment yeah, yeah. Um, or dance for performance, mm. that is, but it's exposing, it's physical... Mm. It's in your body. Mm. What is it then that dance gives you that you don't get in that in those other zones? I think it comes back to that almost. Um, it comes back to that almost ethereal or spiritual um, quest that I do feel when I do dance and I think it's got something to do with obviously heritage being Aboriginal and also knowing a bit about where I'm from that sense of the land taking on a different form at night as it does during the day Um, and possibly it's in the DNA Um, another thing I'm interested in at the moment and sort of in collaboration with another artist is this idea that because we both come from a very um, broken lineage of where we are culturally as people, we then rely a lot on our own intuition and really trying to escalate that DNA that we have. So one of the projects that we're sort of looking at is this thing called transmission where we look at how we can transmit our cultural heritage. And I think one of the things we will do is go back to our country or our place of origin and seeing what we can extract from that. So for me, yeah, dance has become like almost like a spiritual journey. Um, I think I do see it more so than anything else. And and when I do think about some of the comments that have been made from that the years gone by is that, yes, you have a very, like, um, spiritual connection rather than, you know, you have a lovely line or something, you know, it's, just, it's always this, like, spiritual sense, it's like, you have that sense of, you know, um, your deep connection to yourself as a person on stage. And I think that's one of the successes of Monster that I found as well, that there was a, some people were moved because they 
were able to see the the trauma and also experience the trauma as well. And it really got them at the end when I made that real guttural scream. Mm. Yeah. It so, was deep and it yeah. was like it was so connected. Yeah. Um, so visceral. It was yeah. really... Yeah, I surprised myself. moving moment. Yeah. It was, it yeah. was as if something else had mm. taken over your body yeah. in that way that it was just a sound that we didn't expect. Yeah, no. What's next? Well, I've been thinking of this work I'm going to hopefully make. Once again, it's going to be quite dark. So this is the way I think a lot to go. Um, and it's... Something to do with extreme, and extreme being not in the body's sense, but I think in the more psychological sense, maybe, um, or the body taking on a, a psychological construct that becomes quite extreme. <coughs> um, and I and I read a, a novel recently, *The Piano Teacher* by Alfred Jelinek. And um, there's there's uh, there's passages in there that are actually you know, so so visceral and so real. But at the same time, I can actually understand exactly why this person did what they did. And it's really just this idea of like trying to really find. A connection to anybody, to anything. Um, you know, having been repressed for so so long in their life, they then start to like, you know, for instance, one one section which starts cutting herself, you know, to feel anything, and eventually, you know, as she grows older, she becomes more stoic, more and quite conservative. But at night, she takes on this different, you know, persona. Um, so I think it's that idea of the extreme emotion that we feel um, when we are in that state of repression and what you actually do to get out of it. And it's very confronting, um, very confronting. Um, so using those images and also images from other things I've read, I think I'd like to construct this sort of character that goes through these extreme you know, extreme journeys um, throughout the whole performance. Um, so it's got something to do with being extreme. I'm not sure what that is yet, but um, I think the start will be something to do with looking at that that book and taking apart what it is that that character in that book did that became so extreme and why it was extreme. And I think using the tools I use for Monster to create that. So, yeah, I don't know. Let's go back and work on it. How fun. I know. We're looking forward to it. Fun and dark. I know. Being, <laughs> fun, dark. I think, I think I'll call it deranged, actually. I like it. Yeah, I like, I like the word deranged. Rather extreme. Deranged is pretty cool. Um, and then start to play in these characters, whatever they are. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed these episodes shining a light on the diverse experiences of dance, 
perhaps you would like to contribute. All contributions help keep delving into dance going. With arts journalism suffering around the globe, these platforms are now, more than ever, critically important for artists, providing them a space to discuss their work and to help archive their experiences. You can contribute at delvingintodance.com. Stay tuned for future episodes and check out previous episodes with the likes of Raphael Bonicella, Meryl Tankard, Thomas Vanua and Samantha Hines, all at delvingintodance.com. You can find us on Twitter, Delving Dance, or on Facebook. Just search Delving Into Dance. Until next time, take care.